This is quite a section of Scripture this morning. As you probably sensed as we read through it, there's a, uh, a lot of words that kind of jump out at you when you read this. Things like hypocrite, uh, vain, vanity in your worship. Uh, things like this that, that we hope aren't true of us, but we know that in some degree and at different times, these lessons are to be ours. Things that we need to learn and to listen from, from our Lord Jesus as He speaks to us through His Word. What drives, what drives you? What, what propels you? What, you realize we have a priceless commodity. Each of us does. We have a priceless commodity. Each day you will spend down on that balance. And you'll never make a deposit to add any more. That invaluable treasure is time. What determines the direction you will go with the limited time? And it is limited. As, as the testimonies this morning uh, tell us, several people's time is over. At least three. At the same time, in the last month, two or three people's times have just begun. Little babies that were born. Although I would, with all my heart, know that they were babies the moment they were conceived. But that began at that time. But time is limited. We have a, a certain amount of it. So what determines the direction you will go with the limited time you have been given? There is an underlying foundation below each of your decisions, whether you realize it or not. What is your foundation or guiding principle? What is your presupposition to each decision you face in life. What's a presupposition? A couple of definitions. A thing tacitly assumed beforehand at the beginning of a line of argument or course of action. But here's another one that can apply maybe a little easier. Something that you assume to be true, especially something which you must assume is true, in order to continue with what you were saying or thinking. Presupposition. Something you assume to be true, especially something which you must assume is true, in order to continue with what you are saying or thinking. Jesus had a presupposition. Isn't it fascinating to think that the Creator of the universe, according to John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, the Creator of the universe, Jesus Christ, who possessed all wisdom, knowledge, and power, had a presupposition for his life decisions other than simply, I am God's son, so I do what I want to do. That wasn't what he did. As impossible as it probably would seem, is Jesus, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God, the conqueror of death, the Savior of mankind, is his a presupposition Something a mere puny mortal man like myself could even begin to understand, let alone somehow live by. It is. It is, and I hope that we can see that this morning. The account this morning begins with something the disciples did that was an absolute atrocity to the investigating Pharisees. Then in the final portion of this episode... 
we will see the true hearts of these religious accusers as they are put out in full exposure. We'll see these hearts for what they really are. Let's pray as we begin to study this morning. Heavenly Father, we, we come to you. Lord God, we come to you in the midst of even some of what we're reading about this morning. Father, please send your Holy Spirit upon us, all of us, that we would be led by you. We would be convicted. We would be changed. We would be humbled and we would see you. May we understand Jesus Christ and know him, not just know about him, but know him more than than we have before because of the blessing of your word and your Holy Spirit. Please break down all the barriers, Lord, and the distractions and the things that would keep us from you. And for this short amount of time, please impress upon us. Press us, Lord. Speak to us. In your name we pray. Amen. An atrocity to the Pharisees. The occasion is explained in verse 1. The occasion. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now remember the Pharisees. They play one of the biggest parts in the account this morning. Their threats against Jesus are growing stronger and stronger by the day. And their aim now is to find a way to justifiably kill him. Pharisees, they were very influential and legalistic sect of the Jewish religious leadership. Their title, Pharisee, means separated ones. And this was their goal, to be separated from any and everything that could somehow defile or pollute their presence before God. The beginning, the beginning of the Pharisees is around 200 years before Christ. They were a fairly small number. Uh, they guessed that there were approximately 6,000 Pharisees at the time of Jesus. But their influence over Israel at the time of Jesus was huge. They dominated Jewish religious life. And therefore they dominated the people of Israel who were very religious. The Pharisees demanded tight adherence to exacting and overbearing regulations which they called the tradition of the elders. The tradition of the elders is something they had developed. They themselves had developed and adhered to for several centuries. The scribes that are mentioned here, they're a subgroup of the Pharisees. And they're sometimes called lawyers. And they specialized in the application of the law and the traditions that were developed by the Pharisees. So you have the Pharisees and then you have the scribes, who most of them must have been Pharisees as well, coming together. This highly motivated group of men are now back in town in Capernaum. Capernaum is on the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. Jerusalem is down here to the south. This group of men has traveled 90 miles to get up here and focus on Jesus, to gather around Him. In Mark 3.22, just a short time before this morning's episode, Jesus faced these Jerusalem scribes, and they had accused Him at that time of working together with and being under the power of none other than Satan himself. Their hatred for Christ is swelling, 
And they must find a way to eliminate him completely. That's the mood that we come to this morning. That's the occasion. They are on the warpath. They have to find a way to destroy Jesus. And now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is with unwashed hands, they found fault. And this is their observation. Mark, it's interesting, Mark gives evidence that his gospel was written to a Gentile audience here. Uh, Terms that are being mentioned or practices that are being mentioned, he gives explanation about. Long through this story, he offers some very helpful explanation inserted into this report. For instance, he doesn't just say defiled, but look how he says this. He gives clarification writing, that is unwashed hands. Now this is ceremonially clean. It has absolutely nothing to do with basic hygiene or sanitation. They weren't doing this before they ate so that they wouldn't catch some sort of sickness or disease. This was ceremonially clean. You see, the Pharisees possessed an inordinate fear that by chance they might have touched something, something somewhere profane or unclean that would have defiled them. Their ritual cleaning, it's almost unceasing as they live. And we'll see that here. Now look in your scriptures, verse 3 and 4. They come in like an insert or a footnote, and they explain why this unwashed hand thing is such a big deal. In fact, in some of your versions, verses 3 and 4 are opened and closed with parentheses. So it's brought in here to give explanation. The cleanliness standard, which they were trying to uphold. Verse 3. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. Carefully wash. Wash. It literally translates into something that sounds like a a fist washing. A fist washing. Now this was done in a very clearly detailed manner. Water was poured from a jar onto hands whose fingers were pointed up. You would hold your hands like this. And supposedly then the water would drip off your wrists And when that happened, you'd flip them over, your hands pointed down, and more water would be poured onto them. And then after a while, and that was done, then you would shake the water off, and you would, it appears, and they're not exactly sure, but it appears that somehow you would rub the fist into each of the hands, which is where they get this idea of fist washing. Don't know where that began. None of the commentators seem to know that either, but this was the best explanation. It was a ceremonial cleaning. But this is all based on what we read as the all-important source of this regulation. And this is one of the key, important parts of the message this morning. Where did they get this hand-washing? Where did they get all their regulations? It came from what we hear so often called the tradition of the elders. Tradition of the elders. Since the tradition of the elders is the battleground between Jesus and the Pharisees, now and it will be throughout the Gospels, Let's take a look at its history. You see, the Pharisees believed that at the time Moses received the written law from God on Mount Sinai, God also spoke to Moses unwritten instructions for interpreting and applying the written law. This oral law was then passed on by word of mouth from generation to generation. Does this click with some other things we have going on contemporarily now in our culture, our society. Let me go on here. This false heresy 
which has no support in God's Word. There is no mention of anything like this. It's very similar to the Roman Catholic doctrine of the co-equal authority of oral tradition, the Scriptures, and the Magisterium. The Magisterium are the church leaders like the Pope. And this is sometimes in Catholicism pictured as a three-legged stool. When the authority of the Scriptures, however, is lowered onto a level of the traditions, and the traditions are policies that are created by man, then who is in authority? Let me say that again and think that through. When the authority of the Scriptures is lowered to the level, same level of the traditions, and the traditions are policies and practices that are created by man, then who is in authority? It is no longer Scripture. It is not even traditions. It is the men who created the traditions and who also say that only they can correctly interpret Scripture. Roman Catholicism today, like Pharisaism, is a religion dictated by the men in religious authority who have done just what these Pharisees did. They have turned to the rules of man, the traditions, rather than the Word of God as final authority. This same heresy, it can ex exist in Protestant circles as well. When the authority of Scripture is lowered, then the exclusive right of a person or group to interpret it has been promoted. The Word of God must be at the pinnacle. It must be what directs and leads all thought. And I'm not saying something that I believe would be considered slanderous, even before the Roman Catholics, for that is, I've had many conversations and that is where they stand. But it is so similar to what we see with the Pharisees this morning. The traditions of the elders, they were passed on from one generation to another orally, that is by mouth, without written documentation. And they were known as the halacha, the unwritten oral tradition, halacha. This body of knowledge then was eventually collected and written down in the third century by a rabbi by the name of Yehuda. And it was then called in written form the Mishnah. So if you ever heard of these Jewish terms, halacha and Mishnah, these come from this oral tradition that was handed down. Now much of the Mishnah consisted of what we have called before, and we've discussed this, the fence laws. There were the laws that were given by God, and that at some point early in their history, the rabbis took it upon themselves to try to create other laws or regulations that would protect people from violating the actual commands of God. So they would build these other laws around so you couldn't get close enough to violate those laws. And I've used this illustration several different times, but one time uh, J.R. Markalesco had a badly injured leg, and when we came to his home one evening for a, a special time of fellowship, he sat in a chair, and around here were orange cones. And we weren't supposed to get past those orange cones. Now, if I got past the orange cones, nothing happened to J.R., but it brought me closer to him, and I could have touched him and maybe injured his knee. So the, the real command was don't touch J.R.'s knee, but the fence laws kept us back so nobody accidentally did that. And that's what they did with these fence laws, the, this tradition of the elders. But through the centuries, these just kept piling up and piling up and piling up. You had, a, for one you had the Mishnah, and then you have a commentary that comes upon the Mishnah, and then eventually you have the Talmud, which brings in the Mishnah, 
and some of the other regulations that were brought together. And, and then you have, that was about 350 A.D. And then in 600 A.D., you have the Babylonian Talmud, which was written to be four times larger than the Talmud that was created in 350. So there was this obsession with creating these traditions. Now those came after Christ, these written collections of them. But, but understand, for a few hundred years, these have been already piling up. And we've talked about some of these regulations, some of the crazy things they did on the Sabbath that you could and you couldn't do. And this morning we're focusing on a different one. But in this confrontation, look at your scriptures now, between Jesus and the Pharisees, Jesus increasingly clarifies what the tradition of the elders really is. And look how he does this. It's very interesting. Mark begins in verse 3, tradition of the elders. In verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribes say the tradition of the elders. Then in verse 7, Jesus quotes Isaiah, the commandments of men. In verse 8, Jesus says, the traditions of men. Verse 9 and verse 13, he simply says, your traditions. Their standard is demonstrated in verse 4. Let's look at this example. Verse 4, the example of these Pharisees. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Now some of your versions have that omitted. It does not alter Mark's description at all though. Within the tradition of the elders, there was an increasing level of ceremonial cleanliness and what it took to obtain that. It went up and up and up. It ratcheted. And when we read that the Pharisees would wash after returning from the marketplace, this wash is an altogether different level of intensity than what we saw originally there. This wash is the Greek baptizo which means to immerse. You get it? To immerse. In the marketplace, the Pharisees ran the risk of bumping into a Gentile or a Samaritan or maybe even a Jew who had some sort of a disease or had touched a dead person. They were obsessed with this idea of somehow they could be made impure. And these would have been second grade impurities. So what happens? Upon arriving home from a public venue... It was necessary that the Pharisees take an entire bath to cleanse himself from defilement, whether real or potential. So when you came home from a public gathering, uh, if I was to stop in a Walmart this afternoon and then headed home, I'd have to take a bath if I was going by the regulations of the Pharisees. It, w- it, was, it just increases in its intensity. Do you see the picture? Do you see the picture of these Pharisees? It's becoming increasingly clear. What is their life for God? Their life for God is obsessed with externals. And there is no mention of a true heart for their God. Obsessed with externals. Then the Pharisees in verse 5 and the scribes ask Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? And here we have the art of hypocrisy. And Jesus begins to attack this part. The art of hypocrisy. The offending accusation in verse 5. Now, when you read verse 5, who is this question really about? Look at verse 5. Who is this really about? 
At first glance, it reads as if the Pharisees and scribes are asking Jesus about the behavior of his followers. But consider why the Pharisees have come and who they are after. This is not about the disciples at all. This question is aimed solely at Jesus. Jesus, you are in charge of these guys. These are your disciples. And they are your responsibility. Why do you let them, even encourage them, to break the traditions of the elders that we require of all the Jews? Obviously, this is not the first time their traditions have been encroached upon by Jesus or His disciples, is it? Back in Mark chapter 2, Jesus had disregarded their regulations about associations and friendships and was certainly defiled in their minds when He ate with tax collectors and sinners. And He didn't just eat with a few. It says there, there were many and they followed Him. This, this drove the Pharisees crazy. He's spending time with the very people that they must avoid and have to take a bath from if they would happen to bump into Him. And Jesus is eating and having fellowship with them and ministering to them and teaching them about God. It drove them nuts. In chapter 2, verse 23, His disciples actually picked and ate handfuls of grain on the Sabbath as they traveled. This also drew outrage from the disciples. I mean, excuse me, outrage from the Pharisees. A little later in Mark 3, picture this, in a Jewish synagogue, on the Sabbath, Jesus healed a man. This created such hatred. Can you imagine that? Jesus healing a man. And it creates such hatred in the heart of the Pharisees that they immediately began to plot a way to kill Jesus. He healed a man and they want to kill him. He will not come under their traditions. And now here we go again. Verse 6. Jesus answered and said to them, Well, right, or well, or rightly, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written. And we will now see the heart of the accusers. These are actors unaware. Do you see what Jesus is doing? Look at how he approaches this issue. He automatically throws the whole confrontation back in front of the mirror of God's Word. That's what Jesus does from the get-go. He brings it back to the Word of God. He is totally presuppositional. By this I mean that for Jesus, every truth and argument and solution is based on the Word of God. This is an instruction, an example for us. Brothers and sisters, this is what we must begin to understand and approach all of life with, the Word of God. We have already seen that in the minds of the Pharisees and the scribes, the commands of God's Word are secondary, if they're even at that level. But the leaders, these Pharisees and scribes, they do have a foundational presupposition. And what is it? The tradition of the elders. They base everything that they see in life and in religious life upon the tradition of the elders. Now, for you and I, I want you to think of this. When you are speaking with someone about spiritual or life issues, you and they will come with presuppositions. 
or foundational beliefs. Whether they profess to be a humanist, an atheist, a secular scientist, a Muslim, a Hindu, an agnostic, they will have a foundation they rely on for their direction and decision making in life. They may not even be aware of what that is. But they will have a foundation upon which they make their decisions. The most valuable resource you can bring into your interaction with them, the most valuable resource you can bring is truth. The most important thing you can bring is truth. I am not suggesting that you forego showing sympathy, patience, humility, understanding, or respect. No, not at all. We must show those. Jesus showed those to those he spoke with and even asked them many questions. But truth is what we have to offer. Jesus' spoken manifesto His central theme and foundation was the word of His Father. Here is how Jesus put it. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that His command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Would that not be a tremendous testimony for us? When, if, if and when we are put before those who would question what we believe or demand us to let go of what we believe or those that may be curious, what is it that you believe? Why is your life like this? That so we could say, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that His command is everlasting. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, So I speak. Brothers and sisters, I speak way too much of my own words. Whether it's in evangelism setting or whether it's amongst conversation and way too little of how Jesus spoke. Let God speak to you on that. Jesus also said, John 17, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Jesus said to him in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is key. This is key in understanding two very important aspects of Jesus' ministry. I want to give you two things that stand out. First, remember the impression made on the people in the synagogue in Capernaum after Jesus taught them there? Not even talking about the amazing miracles that he did. Remember the impression they had if they had heard him speak? Mark 1, verse 22. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. You see, the content of the teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes was almost always quotation from the commentaries and interpretations handed down to them through the tradition of the elders. Jesus, however, Jesus, however, spoke and reasoned as a man who knew God and knew God's Word. He taught them as one having authority. Can we learn to speak as men and women who know God and know God's Word? Secondly, 
Repeatedly, Jesus built his teaching on the phrase, Have you not read? Or, It is written. Here are a few. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? Have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath? Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. But concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The phrase, it is written. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus again. It is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only you shall serve. It is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. The Son of Man indeed goes, just as it is written of Him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Then He said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. Where does Jesus get His authority? From the Word of God. The Word of God is like a lion, wrote Spurgeon. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. Know the Word of God. Know the Word of God. Spend immense time in the Word of God. Now, I, I know you might not have, have a, an hour where that's all you can do in the morning. But you may drive an hour during the day and you can listen to the Word of God. Certainly, you can take portions of time through the day. It all depends on what we see the Word of God to be. Do we really see it to be the living water? Do we see it to be the bread of life? Do we see it to be that which breaks a, ha a hammer, which breaks a rock in pieces? Do we see the Word of God to be a light into our path and a lamp to our feet? Do we really see it to be a double-edged sword that pierces and divides soul and spirit and joints and marrow? Is that what we see the Word of God to be? If we do, we will be here. And I tell you, the enemy and the flesh will do everything it can to keep us from doing that. So expect a battle, but it is a battle worth fighting and giving yourself too fully. Know the Word of God. Use it as your theme, your language, your strategy, your strength, your revealer, your two-edged sword of the Spirit of God. Back to the Scripture. Using Scripture, Jesus answered, and said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is from me, far from me. Hypocrites is a term taken from Greek theater, meaning to take a part on stage. It was described by one writer as one who acts, as a, acts a role without sincerity, hence a pretender. A hypocrite is a pretender. This doesn't mean, this does not mean that they were not dedicated to their role. The Pharisees were deeply committed to their oral traditions. They seemed to say so many right things, or at least spoke about God often, 
But what does he say? That was their lips. Their heart is far from me. They were only actors on a religious platform. In Matthew 15, verse 2, Jesus points to the true conflict immediately. This is Matthew's uh, description of this situation. Jesus says, why do your, they say to Jesus, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? Edwards wrote, this is oral tradition in acid contrast to God's will. Now, I believe, I believe Jesus spoke this to these hardened religious hypocrites. These are dead men walking. They are white painted tombs full of dead rotting bodies, says Jesus. And he spoke the truth to them in love. Well, I am sure Jesus spoke with great rebuking power. I have no doubt about that. Yet he did so with compassion. Jesus cared deeply about the countless lives of poor men and women who had been led toward hell by these men. That's what they were doing. They were leading the people toward hell. Jesus once said he had compassion, or said he had compassion on them because when he saw them, they were like sheep without a shepherd. But he still cared about these men before him on that day. And I ask you, would not a young man soon arise from their ranks of wicked hypocrisy and become the greatest missionary of Christ ever known? This was the group of men that the Apostle Paul rose up out of. So when we, we see things, remember Jesus and try to have this attitude, this heart. Yes, we can despise and hate what we see as heresy and false teaching and leading people astray. But we must also realize these may be men who are doing it that could be saved as well. And Jesus spoke with power and he spoke with tenderness depending upon the situation. And he was led by the Spirit of God. Verse 7 is, is so sobering. Read this. And in vain they worship me. In vain they worship me. Teaching as doctrines the commandments or precepts of men. Worthless teaching as empty worship. First Samuel. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord, not the traditions of the elders? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. You see, this was the plight of Israel long before Christ at Jesus' time and in 2021 in Wichita, Kansas. We who confess Christ do, we worship in vain. You must ask yourself that question. Do we worship in vain? Do you think these elders or these scribes and Pharisees, when they heard this, said, yeah, you're right, we know that. No. Do I think I know when I'm worshiping in vain? No, I don't. That's why we need this. We must let this be our guide, our mirror, our instruction, our tutor, to give us the direction that God would have us to do, even and especially in Worship of Him. If we, like the Pharisees, if we, and listen, 
If we, like the Pharisees, substitute traditions, preferences, performers, feelings, or emotions, if we substitute those as our guidelines for worship in placing a place of worshiping according to the commands of God, our worship is worthless. Joel chapter 2. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and He relents from doing harm. Intense in motion, outward expression, accomplish nothing as worship. Turn your heart completely to your God. Amos 5. I hate, I despise your feast days, and I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. But let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Great celebrations, offering sacrifices of immense value, creative and beautifully expressed music will not move the heart of God nor fool Him. Isaiah 1, verse 11. To what purpose is a multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. And I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. We talk about washing there. But it's not the kind of washing that the Pharisees and the scribes were experts at. It was the washing of the heart and the mind and repentance and commitment and faithfulness to the God of our fathers, the God of creation, the King of kings. Romans 12, verse 1. Paul, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Worship is a precious offering to God. Don't abuse it and don't make assumptions of it. Do not think for a moment that your emotions brought you near to the heart of God, nor the eloquent words you prayed, nor the hands lifted up or the tears shed, 
or the somber silence in meditation, or the historic melodic hymn sung in four-part harmony, or the hip-hop rap with piercing lyrics. If you see someone bowed in silence, they may be drawing near to God, but their heart may be far from Him. If you see someone with raised hands and calling out Amen, he may be having a heart close to God, but he may have a heart full of himself. The externals will not present worship. Worship is a heart before God. We must be careful on how we judge others. Judge ourselves. Help us to see, oh Lord, where our hearts really are. God commands, what is, I guess the question then may come, okay, well what is worship? God commands in these scriptures in which I've shared with you this morning, obedience is worship. Repentance is worship. Righteousness, justice, compassion demonstrated to the needy. These are worship. You see, worship is alive. It's not static. Worship is obedience, not emotion. Now, can emotion be a part of worshiping in live obedience? It most certainly can. I love emotion in worship. But it is not either a gauge of whether we worshiped or not, nor is it the core of what worship is. As dedicated as they were, the Pharisees still offered only a substitute worship. Verse 8, a substitute worship. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. Look again, here Jesus is giving a damning comparison. You are laying aside, you are neglecting the commandment of God, and you are holding fast. It means to seize with strength to the traditions of men. In the end, the religious hypocrisy of the Pharisees turned out to be the act of annulment. The annulment of the commands of God. That's what these traditions did. Verse 9, we're removing and holding on. He said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your traditions. This first phrase, all too well. Some of yours says, your, your translations say, you are experts. Another says, you have a fine way. You see, the very men who took pride in their religious zeal were declared by God to be highly skilled rejectors of His Word and keepers of their man-made tradition. Very skilled, all right. But in the things we do not want to be skilled at. So let Christ offer an example to these men so they can see what He's talking about. Offer an example of this charge. In verse 10, God's command is, For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. It's from Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. It is the fifth commandment given by God, originally written by God. And he who curses or reviles his father or mother, let him be put to death. Taken from Exodus 21, verse 17. Jesus' first quotation declares the high importance of honoring your parents. This honoring includes respect, love, and as we see here, also physically and financially caring for them when needed. It's not just emotion even as we honor our parents. 
We're to go the extra mile. We're to make sure we care for them in time of need. This was terribly important. The second quote declares the seriousness of God when he says, any man who is dishonoring or indifferent to his parent is to be what? Executed. If we are to dis- disregard them, to neglect them, to go on our own way, then, then we should be executed, says the Word of God. But the Pharisees' command is in verse 11. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is korban, that is, that is a gift to God. And that's what korban means. It means devoted to God or a gift to God. And how can you argue with that? Parents are certainly to be honored, but, but is not God to be honored above even them? What a manipulation this turns out to be. Corban actually was like a fully accessible, deferred contribution to the temple. One writer said, Though a person could declare all his possessions Corban, he was not required to donate them immediately to the temple or synagogue. For the most part, the pledged possessions remained under his control. In fact, whenever he wanted to use them for his own purposes... He could reverse the vow merely by saying korban over them again. The hypocritical system promoted by the Pharisees and scribes allowed people to maintain an external veneer of dedication to God while simultaneously turning their back on their parents. Then we see the tragic results. Tragic results can be seen practically in verse 12. Then you no longer let him do anything. Or his father or his mother. After all, Numbers 30, verses 1 through 2, Moses spoke to the head of the tribes concerning the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. And that's what they tried to make their stand upon. And yet they could back out of it at any time. Historically, it seems that the practice was many times to just korban everything. How much more outwardly spiritual can you get? All of my life, all of my possessions belong to God. So the person devoting all to God was now providing nothing for his parents, no matter how desperate and needy they were. Matthew words it simply, then he need not honor his father or mother. That was the result of it. The tragic result is also seen spiritually in our final verse this morning. Making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. This is not a one-time flaw, chink in the armor. This was everywhere through the tradition of the elders. The final result is that the very word of God was rendered worthless. It had no effect. It was invalidated. It was wiped out or wiped over by a massive dump of man-made traditions. When Jesus is accused of breaking the law or the traditions, He has never broken the law of God, but He freely broke the traditions of the elders with no hesitation. That's why we must know this. This must be deep in our hearts, in our minds. This must be our life. The Pharisees were hypocrites. Nothing from the heart, all external. I'll close with this 
verse, these verses from Luke chapter 11, beginning with verse 37. Luke eleven thirty seven. And as he spoke, a certain Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and sat down to eat. When the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. Then the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees make the outside of the cup and dish clean, but your inward part is full of greed and wickedness. Foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But rather give alms of such things as you have, then indeed all things are clean to you. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs, and pass by justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like graves which are not seen, and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. Then one of the lawyers answered and said to him, Teacher, by saying these things you reproach us also. And he said, Woe to you also, lawyers, for you load men with burdens hard to bear, And you yourselves do not touch the burden with one of your fingers. I hope that the Word of God has pierced your heart in some way. I hope we can say, Teacher, by saying these things, you reproach us also. And God rebuke us, correct us, and teach us to worship. See, worship is not an expression that we do when we all just come together and the music's on. Worship, according to the Word of God, is the very fiber of our lives, how they are lived out before God. That, according to Romans 12.1, is your spiritual service of worship. Be faithful. Be faithful every moment because every moment you have opportunity to worship God in the home, as you teach, as you repair, as you build. As you weep, as you laugh, do all unto the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is a double-edged sword that pierces even to to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and judges the thoughts and intents of our hearts. Lord, please bring, bring clearly to our hearts and minds what you would desire for us to repent of, what you desire for us to commit to and be faithful in. Help us to worship. Lord, it is clear in your scriptures that we cannot worship unless your Holy Spirit enables us to worship. Thank you. Thank you for how you've spoken in your word this morning. May we be a people of God that love you and worship you with every fiber of our being, every minute of our day. Amen.